Want to go ahead and read the thing? I do. Even in the midst of World War II, the German-born acrobatics troupe known as the Flying Wellendas were beloved. Audiences across the United States turned up by the thousands to witness their high-wire feats always performed without safety harnesses and often without even a net below. Their dazzling performances were met with standing ovations, and audience members were not always believed when they later described the gravity-defying and incredibly dangerous stunts they'd seen. On this particular performance day, July 6th of 1944, on their perch 30 feet above the ground, the aerialist Carl Wallenda and his troop prepared to begin their opening stunts. These would lead into the one they were best known for, a four-person pyramid sailing across a high wire on a bicycle pedaled by Carl. As they waited, they had an excellent view of the rings below. On their left, a troop of dancing girls were performing a comedy number in lion costumes and gold-trimmed leotards. On the other side, an animal show that mixed Great Danes with trained leopards was being enthusiastically received. All around the performance areas, Layers of bleacher seats stretched nearly to the bottom of the big top, where the fringe of the waterproof tent roof hung down to protect the uppermost rows from any wet weather. Seven thousand of those bleacher seats were full, and as the dancing girls bowed and the leopards were rounded up, an expectant hush came over the crowd as they gazed up at the flying Wallendas. But before the troop could set out across the tightrope, they spotted something horrifying. Behind the big cats and the ringmaster, across the sawdust floor and under the wooden bleachers, a flame had taken hold of the canvas sidewalls. Before the flying Walendas or anyone else could shout out a warning to the audience, the flame had shot up to where the canvas sidewall met the tent's roof, and in an instant, 90,000 square feet of canvas was ablaze. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the Hartford Circus Fire. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, membrane architecture specialist for the Relative Disasters Tent Company. And I'm her brother Greg, ringmaster historian for Relative Disasters University. Uh, just a heads up before we get started, today's episode is a conflagration one, and dear listeners, yeah. we want to warn you up front, we're discussing a fire in which a large proportion of the victims were young children. Uh, if that's going to be too much for you, please feel free to skip. We've got some lighter episodes coming up. Sure. Uh, this is a listener request from Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Hey. There was so much more to this story than I thought there would be. Um, yeah. And once you get into like the circus lore, it was super fascinating to research. So thank you, Sarah. Okay. Excellent. Speaking of research, our main sources for this episode were a website called Circus Fire 1944 and a book called The Hartford Circus Fire Tragedy Under the Big Top by Michael Skidgel, which came out recently in 2019. Okay. I thought this book was really excellent. It's solid research. Um, it's detailed without being salacious, which is a really hard line to toe <laughs> in disaster writing. Yeah. And it will break your heart in a couple of places. So highly yeah. recommended. As always, any factual mistakes are mine and not the author's. Like you make factual mistakes. Greg, we are going to the circus today. Yay. I love a circus. 
and we're going all the way back to 1944. I like circuses from then a little bit less. They were not as nice to the animals as they are now. Yeah, I was actually really surprised to hear that there were so many circuses and such successful circuses in the U.S. during World War II when people were like dealing with rations. Um, Mm -hmm. There's this huge domestic war effort going on, just incredible daily stress. I guess I have this kind of mental picture of 1944 where like women are working nonstop in factories. Uh, you got a victory down. garden going. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> hunkered down. Yep. Kids are running wild. There's no sugar. There's no gas. Are you envisioning like a like a, a hoop rolling down a street propelled by a stick? Little kid no. in a newsboy hat kind of thing? <laughs> I'm envisioning no toys and no fun, <laughs> uh, which does not match with what I learned about circuses. Yeah. Uh, Throughout World War II, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. That's one circus. Mm -hmm. It's also known as the greatest show on earth, which is a little easier to say. I mean, they kind of had a point. Yeah. I mean, this was the big circus. This is the one you wanted to see if you only had one choice. They were touring America relentlessly, and they were playing for thousands of people at a time. I cannot overstate to you how enormous the show was. So you mentioned animals. Yeah. But they also had clowns, dancers, jugglers, acrobats. Um, They had both trained performance animals and like menagerie animals, which is like zoo animals. Yeah, they'd keep them in like these, like it was, yeah, it was like a little traveling zoo. They'd be in these little cages on like the train cars and you could go up and see them. Yeah, so you could like get a close up look at a giraffe or an elephant. Yep. Um, They also have a midway with sideshows like Sword Swallower. They have a... (laughs) living skeleton the world's strongest man yep so the show is enormous so not only do they have all these animals and performers they also have about 800 workers along to set the circus up and keep things running smoothly right and most of the performances take place inside a tent called the big top let me give you some metrics the big top is pretty big it's 200 (laughs) feet wide it is 450 feet long it covers about one and a half acres of ground what? And the center of the tent is just a hair under 50 feet tall, which is like Holy a four and a half story building. Yeah, That's a lot bigger than I thought it was. Yeah. So the Library of Congress has pictures of what yep. the big top looked like from inside. It is vast. It is like almost like a sports stadium. That is crazy. Yeah. It's huge. One and a half acres? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm rethinking my... Uh... That it just changes the metric of it so much. Yeah, just adjust wow. your your mental image here. Yeah. So the big top is an oval shape, and there are two ranks of fifteen foot tall bleacher seats. This circus can seat nine thousand people. Nine thousand. Nine thousand. Yeah. Holy cow! So if you're sitting on these bleacher seats, you're facing. So each row is facing each other across the long sides of this oval. Right. Right. You're and, looking inward. Yeah. Right. And the performance is designed to kind of work on both sides. So like the flying right. Willendas, their tricks can be seen from both sides. And then they yep. have smaller rings that, that are closer to each side. Okay. So these 9,000 seats are backed by this heavy canvas sidewall. That's the side of the tent. And then in the center, there are these three rings and two smaller stages. And that's where the show happens, kind of in the round, right, with the okay. audience on all sides. Right. On each end of the oval are the big main entrance and the bandstand. 
And then the midway and the bathrooms and the sideshow and the menagerie are all kind of clustered around outside the main tent. And the main tent is called the Big Top. Right. Okay. Now, the Big Top is designed to be lightweight, portable, and weatherproof because the circus tours in the spring, summer, and early fall. Right. Uh, quick sidebar, they spend mm-hmm. the winters in Sarasota, Florida, where yes. you can... Circus town. Yeah. <laughs> so you yep. can actually tour John Ringling's mansion yep. uh, and or attend Clown College. That was a really interesting rabbit hole. So as you can imagine, in what's basically a cloth building with a sawdust floor and wood furniture... There exists the threat yeah. of fire. Yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing a, a little hazard here. Yep. As recently as 1942, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus had dealt with a devastating fire where their menagerie tent caught fire and burned to the ground in 15 minutes, which killed dozens of animals. Okay. How does it burn that fast? Well, so the tent is made out of canvas. Sure. The floor is sawdust. Sure. Those are both. Very flammable. Very flammable, yep. Okay. And then there's just no way to put it out once it gets going. Okay, so it's like if you constructed your tent out of newspaper soaked in kerosene. Oh, we'll get there, Greg. We'll get <laughs> oh, goody! <there. laughs> so in the winter of 1943, the Big Top was changed out for a new one. So they upgraded okay. their tent. And Robert Ringling, the head of the circus, ordered a roof that would be both fireproof and waterproof. Isn't that good thinking? That is good thinking. Unfortunately, due to wartime shortages, that just was not possible. You could have oh. one or the other, but not both. <laughs> so let me guess he opted for waterproof. Yep. <laughs> well, it makes more sense. The tent's only going to burn down once, but there's going to be a lot of rain. I think. <laughs> I mean, I hate to I hate to be all cynical business guy here. Well, I'm trying to imagine the decision making that goes into a process like this. Well, it's got to be ridiculously expensive, no matter which way they do it. They have people watching for fires. They have fire extinguishers. Um, they have all these precautions that we'll get into a little bit later. But they sure. know for sure it's going to rain. Yeah, exactly. I'm not trying to excuse no. Mr. Ringling. This is not the right decision. No. <laughs> but I can kind of see how it got there. Yeah. Like I said, it's going to rain. It might not burn. I mean, that's a really terrible... Yeah. But yeah. It's a really, really awful way to think about it. (laughs) So what they ended up with was a roof made of twill canvas. That's a thick cotton fiber in a heavy weave. It's it's slightly heavier than like a heavy pair of jeans. Okay. Okay. And that's coated with 18,000 pounds of paraffin wax dissolved in 6,000 gallons of gasoline. I have a few questions. Uh, And it is indeed extremely waterproof. It will keep your one and a half acres as dry as a bone. Okay. The problem is... <laughs> that doesn't sound super uh, fireproof. No, it's not. At it's all? extremely flammable. Not necessarily because of the gasoline solvents, which would have kind of evaporated. Evaporated. But the paraffin wax is probably a little bit. It's extremely flammable. Yeah. yeah. Remember, we're only talking about the roof here. So the sidewalls and the awnings of the tent are just regular canvas. Okay. 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 Now, the circus knows there's a fire risk, and they have workers called seat men, whose job it is to watch the bleachers and the sidewalls. Uh, remember, please, that this is 1944, and there is no such thing as a no smoking. I was just going to say, how, how many thousands of cigarettes get flicked at the walls every day? That is a very high number. Yeah. 
Um, so at the first sign of fire, which is always going to be coming from the ground up in theory, because that's where people are tossing their cigarettes and matches. Onto sawdust. Right. And canvas. <laughs> So the seatmen are watching for smoke. They're watching for flames. And what they do is throw a pail of water on the smoke and pull down the sidewall. Okay. Which is lashed very loosely to the roof, the big top. I am I am having like a major anxiety attack just hearing about this. I, I don't like this at all. So it's one of those things where if you don't know about it, you're not going to think about it. And once right. you know about it, that's the only thing you're going to think about. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yep which is what our podcast is all about. <laughs> so if they just pull down the sidewall, it smothers yeah. the fire, or at least it gets it away from that very flammable tent top. Okay. okay. And then if the buckets and the sidewall pulling down doesn't do the trick, the circus also has four water trucks, which have pumps and hoses and carry about a thousand gallons of water each. Okay. They also have about four dozen fire extinguishers. Okay. Which is pretty good for yeah, 1944. That's, I'm trying to think of like the coverage of one and a half acres by 48 fire extinguishers. That's not terrible. You have people watching each section and you have these things at hand in theory to kind okay. of immediately deal with anything. Okay. Uh, so that's where we're at. Okay. However, although there are about okay. 50 to 100 people who can put out a fire at any given time and the equipment that I've mentioned... Right. The circus does not have its own firefighters, and to a certain extent, they're dependent on the location for things like access to fire hydrants and professional firefighters. Okay. So they have all these mechanisms that can put out a fire when it's a little fire. But not something that can help once it becomes a real conflagration. Right. Great. Uh, which brings us to the Barber Street Circus Grounds in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. Hartford loves a circus, and the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus visited almost every year, even with the wartime restrictions on railway travel, because, of course, the only way you can get this monster around is by rail. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And the circus has to get special permission to use the tracks because most of the trains in America are busy with the war effort. Sure. So on July 5th, the circus arrives in Hartford late due to a railway delay, and what was supposed to be their opening matinee show had to be canceled. Okay. A little sidebar here for circus superstitions, because canceling a show is considered to be extremely bad luck in the world of circus work. Okay. This circus made every effort to get there on time. People are trained to set it up very quickly. Yep. And to miss that opening performance is just really bad luck. Okay. Uh, it's also a lot of money down the drain. Yeah. I was going to say they probably lost a bit of change on that one. Yeah. Um, I actually fell down into a little rabbit hole on other superstitions. Oh. I found an article in the Baltimore Sun, which interviewed modern circus performers. Okay. Uh, other things that can bring you bad luck. Getting a bird inside the tent. Sure. Certain shades of green. Ooh. Peacock feathers. Really? But an elephant hair is good luck. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, whistling and stepping into the ring with your left foot first. That one I actually kind of knew. That's, yeah. Really? Yeah, the the stepping in with your left foot first thing. I had heard that. I would fall on my face while I tried to remember <laughs> which foot. Uh, so that's why I'm not in circus work. Yeah, that's that's why you're not doing circus work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, circus performance has always been extremely dangerous. So it's yeah. not surprising that some of these superstitions have been around for a long time. Sure. And one of the big ones is canceling your opening yeah. show. 
However, on Wednesday, July 5th, the setup and evening performance at Hartford went off without a hitch. And by the time the grounds were open for the Thursday matinee, the performers and crew had relaxed a little. So the Thursday, July 6th weather was beautiful, sunny, hot. Tickets were selling like hotcakes. And the tent had passed Hartford's safety inspection with flying colors. Sure. It's, I think, important to note that this is a building inspector. And he's looking at structural safety. So Not like, at flammability. No, he's looking at, like, are the seats set up properly? Um, sure. Are the supports going to hold the tent up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, are the animals being kept away from the crowd? So that mm. kind of those kind of like life safety things. Sure, sure. That makes Though sense. the police were on hand for crowd control and traffic issues, mm-hmm. the city had never informed the fire department that the circus was there at all, and there was no fire safety inspection before the show opened. Okay. Now, is that irregular? Okay, so is it like every city would kind of have its own regulations? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the circus okay. is has to follow whatever the local regulations are. And sure. those vary from municipality to municipality and from state to state. And apparently in Hartford, you don't even need to tell the fire department that you're here. You did not in 1944. <laughs> A fire safety inspection might have pointed out two obvious problems. Uh-uh. One, most of the tent's nine exits were small, and they were used to get performers and animals in and out. Right. So during the show, they were blocked by animal cages and wagons. Okay. The other issue is the metal fence installed at the foot of the bleachers. That's between the hippodrome, which is the oval track outside the rings, yep, and the spectators. So this is what's going to keep your five-year-old from walking wandering into, into the elephants. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you stood up from your seat and tried to exit, you would be in this narrow aisle behind the fencing, kind of shuffling along until you reach an exit, which may or may not be clear depending on what part of the performance is happening. Because, of course... Okay. As it's going on, things are moving, animals and equipment is coming in, it's going out. Those nine exits are not necessarily clear. Right. At any given time. Or able to process 7,000 people. Another thing the Hartford Fire Department could have asked for and the circus would have done and had done at many other shows was putting the fire extinguishers under the bleachers where they could be easily reached by the seat men. Oh. Yeah. Where were they otherwise kept? They were where they had been all day, which is in various outer tents where the workers and performers could reach them if something went wrong with, like, the mess tent or the truck with the electrical generator. And the seatmen have buckets of water. Buckets of water are not the same as fire extinguishers. No. No, they are not. So about 7,000 people turned up to the matinee that day. It's impossible to say how many people were inside the Big Top when the show began because there are no records of how many tickets were sold or given away because right. obviously when the circus comes to town, local merchants get tickets sure. to give away. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we can assume that most of the people in the crowd were women and children because it was the middle of the day on a Thursday. Ah, uh, okay. Yep. And the adult men in the family were at work or still overseas because July 6th is only a month after D-Day. Okay. The figure of 7,000, obviously that's an estimate. It comes from witness reports of how full the bleachers looked. So really the crowd could have been anywhere between six and 8,000 people. So at 2.40, just as the show is getting underway, an usher spotted flames on the sidewall of the tent, just behind the toilets, and this is the absolute worst place a fire could be. Okay. 
I don't think I've told you about the toilets. No. So there are these two long rows of bathrooms outside the tent on either side of the main entrance. Okay. Now these are rough. They're for the desperate. They are basically a long canvas box running along the side of the big top with no top, no roof, and curtains separating each stall, inside of which there is a... Hole? Well, let's call it a chamber pot. Sure. Okay. So it's a plywood board and half an oil drum. Okay. Basically... These make your average porta potty look like luxury bathrooms. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because there's no roof to the toilets, here the sidewall is lashed tightly to the top of the tent, so nobody at the top of the bleachers can peek out and see down into the bathrooms. Right. That would be gross. Now, this is the only place where the sidewall cannot be pulled down in two seconds. And it's also right next to the main entrance, which is the only exit that can handle an enormous crowd. <sighs> and that okay. is why I say this is the absolute worst yep. spot. So the usher, when he sees this, he tosses four buckets of water on the flames, but he's too late. Okay. Within seconds, the roof has caught on fire, and at that point, it's a lost cause. So the ushers and the seat men and anyone else at hand start urging the crowd to evacuate. Because remember, this tent is so big that the people on the other side cannot... Yeah, they can't even really see what's going on. Uh, at the same time, the Animal Act is moving lions into two of the staging areas, which block those potential exits. Um, okay. Not just with the lions, but these enormous, like, very heavy cage runways. Right. Obviously with live, scared lions inside. Yeah. And this leaves a quarter of the crowd hundreds of feet from the nearest clear, clear exit. Okay. The fire spreads very, very quickly. And as you can imagine, the panic is intense. I'm going to read you an eyewitness account of a child survivor. Quote, I was at the fire as a 10-year-old with a group of nine consisting of two mothers with their children. I fainted as we waited in the sweltering heat to buy our tickets. My mother took me outside where I recuperated. When we went into the tent, our group was sitting high in the bleachers. They moved further down for my benefit. After the fire started, I was mesmerized by it until I felt the heel of my shoes being tugged from below. I looked around and saw my group was gone. I looked down and there was my mother who motioned for me to jump down to where she and the rest of our group were standing. We exited the tent where a man was slitting a hole in the tent. So that, okay, there are a lot of eyewitness reports and I chose that one because it's the least horrible. Well, it's just such a kid thing. Yeah. You know, there's no awareness of disaster. There's no real panic it's just like a weird thing my shoe is melting exactly and and oh by the way we need to cut a hole in the tent and escape yeah that was going to be a question of mine was if if there was any mechanism for opening up the sides of the tent in event of emergency oh for sure you can cut through it like you would cut through a pair of jeans you just have to have a knife you can't tear through it with your hands right 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 and you can't pull it up from the ground because it's pegged to the ground I read one story about a woman who escaped because she happened to be sitting near a man who had a pocket knife, and then for the rest of her life, she carried one in her pocket just in case. I mean, wouldn't you? (laughs) So for those who are able to get out, like this witness, um, before the big top begins to collapse, which included all the circus workers, all the performing animals, and the vast majority of the audience. Oh. Those stories are pretty similar to to what that child is writing about. Okay. 
They get under the bleachers, which protects them from the worst of the falling canvas and the flaming paraffin. Yeah. And they make it out an exit or either pull up the sidewall and crawl out or they get through it somehow, like with a knife. Sure. You know, we love a rescue. Yeah. Um, so I have to tell you that the circus workers did their absolute best before the fire department could arrive and undoubtedly saved hundreds of people with their oh, actions. Good. good, good. So they immediately begin an evacuation almost as soon as the roof catches on fire. Sure. And it was actually pretty orderly for the first few minutes, which allowed hundreds of people to simply walk down the bleachers, file along those barriers, and exit out the main entrance before the awning there collapsed. Okay. Someone grabs the elephants and leads them away from the crowd as they begin to panic. Okay, smart. Uh, Workers with water buckets doused people's clothes as the burning wax dripped down from the roof. And they help people out of the sidewalls and over the animal runways, which were blocking some of the side exits. Uh, A switchboard operator found a fire extinguisher and kept the diesel truck, which was parked alongside the big top to run the electrical systems. Okay. He kept it from blowing up until it could be moved. Okay, see, that's that's a good move there. Right? You want to do that. You want to stop trucks from exploding in massive fires. Yeah, I just can't imagine hanging out next to the diesel truck, spraying no. it with a fire extinguisher while yeah, the tent is on fire. That's just terrifying. That is that is a level of bravery I aspire to. So basically, every circus worker who was available came running to help get people out of the tent. Good. Emmett Leo Kelly, who was probably the most famous clown in America at the time, was okay. getting ready to perform when the fire began. And there's a famous photo of him running towards the fire in full clown makeup and costume uh, carrying a bucket of water. The strangely, like, questioning part of me has to mm-hmm. ask, is he still wearing the floppy clown shoes as he's yes. running towards the... He is. he is. Okay. And he's in clown makeup as, like, a sad clown. Right, right. That makes sense. It's a really unsettling and... It's very evocative, though. Evocative, a... yeah. Picture. But even with this incredible response, the fire was fast and hot. Yeah. yeah. And if you didn't get out in the first three minutes or so, your odds of survival just plunge. Uh, I hate this. Yeah. I mean, just just like try to imagine those first few seconds you're trying to locate your kids, your friends, and the nearest exit all at once as you're climbing down from these bleachers, the height of a three-story building. Yep. And you're in a tent and the floor is on fire. And, and the roof is on fire. Stripping down. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like any of this. You know, the sense that that roof is going to come down. Oh, yeah. Any, any second now. Yeah. Just hellish. It is a hellscape. Yep. I hate all of this. Thank you. In the chaos, 167 people did not make it out. And they were crushed or smothered or burned in the eight minutes between when the flames were first spotted and when the big top finally collapsed. Eight minutes. Eight minutes for a building the size of a sports stadium to burn to the point where it collapsed. The local hospitals admitted 652 people for injuries ranging from broken bones and smoke inhalations to fourth-degree burns. Okay. Amazingly, all but three of those cases survived their injuries. Wow. And again, these were mostly, like, not mostly, but a lot of these were kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, it is pretty horrible. Yeah. So the immediate aftermath was just devastating, especially for the friends and families who had been separated. And for those who had to try and identify remains at the temporary morgue. Yeah. That took days. And in some cases, it was impossible, especially in cases of children who were too young to have dental records. Yeah. Just the stories are 
heartbreaking. One little girl is identified by her red shoes. It's it's really, really terrible. Yeah. Seven victims, three children, three adults, and an infant were not identified at all. And they didn't match any of the missing persons, which means that some of the identifications must have been wrong. Okay. Yeah. Only one of those victims has been conclusively identified 47 years after the fire. Okay. And the other six are still unknown. Sure. So in all the chaos, it took days for the lost children who had been separated um, to be returned to their parents. And in okay. some cases, it took months for the burns and the other injuries to heal. Sure. Yeah. Goodness. And of course, the amount of trauma inflicted on these families, the survivors and yeah. the community and the circus world was enormous. So yeah. even before the site was cleared up, of course, a major investigation is underway. Yeah. The official investigation is unable to identify what had started the fire, or even if it had been accidental or deliberate arson. Oh, okay. Yeah, which seems like a big question mark. It does, doesn't it? I mean, they were able to pin down where it started. Right. But they, they couldn't figure out how it started, and obviously nobody came forward with why it started. Right. And it's clear from the witness reports that the fire had started in this specific area. Right. But nobody saw anyone toss a cigarette or hold a match to the to the canvas. Or, okay. You know, there was no, like, clear evidence of how this fire got started. Sure. But no matter how it got started, there was some pretty obvious negligence. I think you will agree. Okay. Uh, the circus was forced to remain in Connecticut for weeks while the investigation proceeded. Okay. It wasn't until August that it was allowed to get back on the road, and that was only because they needed to make money to pay off the millions of dollars they were going to owe in damages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they did surprisingly well on the last few weeks of their tour, which they held in stadiums and ballparks. Okay. Yeah. Full houses. I guess. I don't know. That's Yeah, that one's kind of a hard one to wrap your head around, but I guess at the same time, it's... Because this is a huge story in the newspapers. Yeah. Would you take your children to see this same circus in, say, Pittsburgh, if you knew that six weeks ago, 167 people had died? But if they're performing in a baseball stadium, mm -hmm. not inside an incredibly flammable tent, then yeah, maybe. So the inquest found two areas of responsibility. Okay. So first, no one in the city... The people who had issued the permit for the circus to perform and mm -hmm. inspected the tents and grounds, no one turned out to be responsible for the communication lapse between the circus and the fire department because there okay. was no mechanism in place to inform the fire department about the circus or require a fire inspection of the sure. tent. Just big old loophole. I mean, sure. The city immediately put new policies in place to prevent that from happening again. And local jurisdictions across the country began requiring circuses to perform in fireproof structures that had passed a fire inspection. Okay. Which is a very sensible step. Yeah, it's sensible, but it's also expensive and difficult for, you know, the, the circuses themselves to pull off. It, it, it almost leads me to wonder that if circuses had kind of stuck around and mm -hmm. stayed a major thing, if we'd have, like circus stadiums in the u.s you sure. know like oh yeah well hold like purpose-built like purpose-built <laughs> buildings for traveling circuses you know that's a great thought i love that second 
the inquest had found that several circus workers had been negligent. So two of the seatmen were not at their posts. Oh, no. The electrical supervisor for the circus hadn't distributed his fire extinguishers properly. Yeah. And so in the end, a handful of circus officials and supervisors were charged with reckless conduct and allowing reckless conduct, which is also a crime. Five of them were convicted of involuntary manslaughter. They were sentenced between six months and seven years in jail. And then they were all almost immediately pardoned. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's no satisfying scapegoat for this. No. And and even with those convictions, there's still no, like, one person to blame, you know? Right. Like, right. There's it, no villain in this yeah, story. It's just awful. So over the next six years, the circus ends up paying $4 million to the survivors and the families of the victims. That's $4 million in 1944 money? Which is, I think, $1 billion in today's it's money. It's an astronomical amount, yeah. Right up there, yeah. Um, the largest amounts go towards the victims who had suffered the most severe burns in the fire. Of course. And when the circus begins performing under its new big top in 1945, it was made completely out of fireproof canvas. They actually released a press photo of the fire marshal, of a fire marshal, holding a match and a stopwatch to the sidewall to prove that it was fireproof. Okay, okay. And that's the sidewalls and the roof. Yeah. So no word on how waterproof it was, but it was genuinely fire resistant. Rain's just going to make you wet. Fire will kill you. (laughs) When you put it like that, it does make sense. See, that's the that's the argument that when was it Ringling who who purchased the the tent originally? Like, that's the argument somebody should have made with him. It's like, well, we know it's going to rain. We don't know it'll catch on fire. Yeah, but the fire will kill you. The rain won't. Um, the new big top also had extra exits, which were kept clear during performances. Good. Yes, that's also an important basic safety step. Gotta have the exits. You gotta have exits. We were talking about a bunch of fires this year, and I gotta tell you, the the lack of exits is going... There's gonna be a theme. Do you know... I don't know if you remember this, but when our grandmother took us out to the movies, she would yeah. always make us spot Sit. the exits. Mm-hmm. Yep, she'd make us point them out. I think she was just fire aware in general. Some people are more aware than others. Um, (laughs) Sure. We're also neurotic and anxious. (laughs) Uh, But that's a small price to pay for always knowing where the exits are. Yeah, right. I know where I know where my exits are. The Wrinkling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus did not perform again in the state of Connecticut until 1948. I see for me, that almost feels too soon. It's. Okay, but if you consider that they had three circuses a year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, from the turn of the century. They had a purpose-built circus ground in the city. It seems like kind of a long time to go without the circus. I I guess, but it also seems like it might have been kind of a hard sell. Sure. Yes, (laughs) I can see that. In 1956, the circus does away with the big top altogether. They begin performing exclusively in indoor arenas with fire suppression systems. Okay. Okay. Uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus gave their final show in 2017. So they lasted for quite a long time. The cause of the 1944 fire is still undetermined. Okay. And that is the story of the Hartford Circus Fire. Yeah. 
I, th- I thoroughly dislike it. Yeah, it's not my favorite. <laughs> We're doing something lighter next week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I learned a lot about circuses and tent fires. Yeah. Yikes. That will make me paranoid for the rest of my life. Well, on that note, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed, or just shame us publicly. And you know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Uh, housekeeping for this episode. Yes. Do you have anything? I do. I have some housekeeping. Ella, Ella, I have an announcement that makes me so happy, and I know you know this, but I want our audience to know this, too. We have a TV Tropes page. <laughs> so I do not understand why you are so... I'm happy uh, for you, but I don't understand <laughs> why you're so excited about this. So TV Tropes is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful way to lose several hours of your day just reading. Um, it, it's like an entertainment wikipedia sort of where they break down the tropes that pop up in different bits of popular media and Mm -hmm. while playing around on tv tropes the other day i discovered that there is a relative a relative disasters uh page on tv tropes and i'm just very excited about that thank you tropers that's hilarious and i also want to I also want to say thank you to the folks on Reddit who have uh, mentioned us in a couple of different threads now. Um, And uh, those of you who have commented about how bad the sound quality is in our earlier episodes, we hear you. We hear you. I'm so sorry. We know. We are amateur. We are. With no money. (laughs) Exactly. This is, this is what we do for fun. Um, But I am, I am working on remastering them and, uh, and such. Um, But you know, I, I lurk on Reddit. I love reading TV tropes. It's always really neat to me to see us uh, find new audience members that way. And I'm just so excited you guys are here. Um, for sure. We have the and, nicest, oh nicest my God, audience we members. We are really grateful for people who put up with our Incredibly terrible grateful. sound quality and yes. listen to us and send us nice notes. That's all the that's all the housekeeping I have. I'm just, I had one more thing. TVtropes.org, everybody. Go there. It's fun. I uh, just wanted to say a quick thank you to our Instagram friend at MosquitoBites82, yep. who sent me a very long and delightful list of instructions on how to improve our audio quality for season three. If this Ooh. sounds any better to you, say thank you to Yes, <laughs> excellent. Thank you. <laughs> I was really, really grateful to get the help. And if we sound worse, that is my fault. That is our fault. Yes, not, not his <laughs> for fault. For not understanding. <laughs> I think the green cord goes into the blue socket. I think that's how I have mine set up. Okay. Well, for next episode. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster... I'm afraid to ask, as I always am. What's it going to be, Greg? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I decided to start off this year with a little touch of class, Ella. Uh-oh. Uh, we are going to Germany next. Okay. Where we are going to talk about the Erfurt Latrine disaster. Okay. <laughs> when you say classy, 
lowering the tone right off the bat right here. We had a lot of toilets in this episode. Even more in the next one. Deadly yes. toilets. Maybe that should be a theme for season That's our three. theme for, for 2023. Toilets yeah. that kill. Yep. All right. Uh, sounds horrific. <laughs> and I will talk to you later.